podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Bonjour, bienvenue, formidable. That's all the French I've got for you. This is a special French Open preview uh, edition of the Love Tennis podcast. Uh, we're probably going to spend the first half hour not talking about the French Open uh, because we've been overtaken by events elsewhere in the world, as always seems to happen to us. But we will, of course, go through the French Open draw or the top half of the French Open draw because there's almost nothing going on in both the bottom halves. Um, we'll, of course, go through our fantasy tennis picks. Uh, not that I've made mine yet because, as you can hear, I'm hungover. Um, but I will, I will have a go on the hoof. Um, and, of course, we will talk about uh, Wimbledon and the huge decision uh, that was made yesterday and announced by the ATP and the WTA. I am, of course, as always, joined by that man, George Belshaw, the other man, Calvin Beton. I'm James Gray of iNews and iNewspaper, uh, who had their first staff party in two and a half years last night, which might explain quite a lot of what goes on in the next hour. But enough of that. Honestly, listeners must get so bored of hearing, like, my health and George's knee. It's basically makes up about 40% of our content. Uh, Let's talk about Wimbledon. Let's talk about what happened yesterday. Um, The ATP uh, at about 6 o'clock last night, which was quite annoying for those who are already in the pub, uh, announced that they would strip Wimbledon of its ranking points. Of course, as you you know or you may not know, um, the Grand Slams have 2,000 points for the winners. That is double the ranking points. Uh, of the Masters events that take place during the year, and it's a huge incentive for players to go and play these tournaments, quite apart from the money. Um, the ATP statement said, the ability for players of any nationality to enter tournaments based on merit without discrimination is fundamental to our tour. The decision by Wimbledon to ban Russian and Belarusian players from competing in the UK this summer undermines this principle and the integrity of the ATP ranking system. It is also inconsistent with our rankings agreement. Uh, absent a change in circumstances, it is with great regret and reluctance we see no option but to remove ATP ranking points from Wimbledon for 2022. Uh, George, a surprise? Uh, I think the, the, it was once they'd kind of just announced the LTA stuff earlier in the week, there was a bit of a hint that you know this was a distinct possibility. Um, I'm, I was pretty torn on Wimbledon's original decision, a bit on the fence and not kind of for one way or the other. This one, I'm a little bit... I, I kind of struggle to see how the ATP and WTA as player bodies can make this decision. Like, I, I don't see this kind of benefiting the player body as a whole. I kind of understand, you know, wanting to make a stance against Wimbledon, but I really can't imagine this is a very popular decision in the locker room. You know, there's been a few players kind of coming out, like Martin Fuchsvix, who's basically saying, cheers, I'm going to drop from 60 to 130 in the world, which, as we all know, is that's a significant drop. That's, you know, getting into Masters events versus not even qualifying automatically for Grand Slams. Um, so, you know, it's going to have big, uh, wide-reaching problems. And I guess, you know, a lot of this kind of discussion has been about is this fair for players and you know, grand slams they have such a huge amount of points they have such you know obviously the money will probably still stay and i'm sure people will still go to wimbledon and want to play it because of the money you know all the talk about lower rank players skipping it to go and play challenges doesn't make sense to me when you can probably make more in the second round of qualifying at wimbledon compared to like winning a challenger almost um 
but yeah i mean i just don't see this being a particularly beneficial decision and to be honest i'd be quite surprised if this is the end of the story (laughs) because (laughs) I, i think there'll be a bit of a backlash and potentially some quite big tectonic plate shifts from the Grand Slams who as we all know are really the most powerful bodies in tennis and if they decide to kind of hit back at the tours this this really could uh, split the whole thing wide open. Calvin I know you've been very forthright um, against the ban on, on Russian and Belarusian players I mean do, does this feel like a commensurate reaction by the tours? Yeah, I think it's they've dug themselves a hole, and I think now it's just constantly digging further holes while trying to dig themselves out of it. I don't see, as George says, I can't imagine a single player would have backed this. I, I don't see why they would. It doesn't suit any, doesn't give any benefit to anybody. I don't see a way out of it for them. As I've a broken record, I keep saying this, but what do we do if the same thing's in place next year? Which I think it probably will. I doubt this war ends within the next twelve months. So can we have two years of Wimbledon just being an exhibition money tournament? And you can say that the tours rely heavily on the slams, but I don't think it's necessarily as big as is being suggested. The, the tour goes on for about 40 weeks of the year, 45 weeks of the year. Only only eight of those weeks are taken up by the slams. They've got to play something else as well. And you think the one thing that tennis, one of the things that tennis does right much better than many other sports is it has a coherent ranking system. The best player in the world tends to be the world number one, et cetera, et cetera. The second best player tends to be, you know, give or take a couple of weeks every now and then. And we're in danger of messing that up. And if we, you know, we are really in danger of having two ranking systems now, which is just absolute chaos, isn't it? Yeah. That's sort of what I'm alluding to. I mean, I think, you know, if the slams pull their events away and decide to have their own kind of ranking system or whatever or their own kind of mini league you know i actually don't think that would be the worst thing in the world for tennis to kind of rip up the calendar and start again in some ways um you know this obviously wouldn't be the ideal starting point to do that but i've always kind of felt there needed to be some kind of open heart surgery on the tennis tours as a whole but i think the kind of wider point i'm making here is that you know if you think about the slams as events people don't go to them as necessarily like big tennis fans you know people aren't going to go to wimbledon this year and be like well, I think it's just lost its soul because Cam Norrie's not going to get 180 ranking points for reaching the quarterfinals. You know what I mean? It, it, it is just a slightly different vibe at, at these sort of tournaments. I, I don't think it changes that much. And and similarly, I, I don't think it changes that much for the players because, you know, there's still two, two and a half million up for grabs or whatever for the winner. Um, maybe not that much to be fair, 2.3, something like that. Um, but yeah, I... I don't know. It is such a horrible mess now, and uh, my my favourite dig at the minute is that I'm I'm still waiting for a statement from the PTPA because uh, I just think they're the most useless body, and I can't believe they can't even get a decent statement out on something as big as this within <laughs> like twelve hours. But here we are. Yeah, I think George touched on there what I was going to say is that it, all this has done is highlighted the problem of the ATP wanting this ideal world where they're both the players' union and the governing body, which is just impossible and it cannot work. They have to represent the players, but they also have to represent the tournaments and the ranking system. So what we've got here is a clear conflict that they need they need to both represent the ranking system and the tournaments in one, in one hand, and they need to represent the players in another. And you can't do it. You're, you're going to have to compromise one of them. And this is why if... That's why the players do really need a union. It's a shame the union that they had seems to be only interested in getting more money for the 
last day of any Grand Slam. Are, are they even representing the tournaments in this one? I, 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 I feel, it feels to me like they're representing about a body of about 30 players. They're representing it. the tour, I think. They're representing the... I guess they could argue that they're representing the the normality of where we go after this because then after Wimbledon you've got to remember that you come into Cincinnati in the US hardcourt swing and you've then got the seedings who qualifies and that kind of thing like for example Daniel Medvedev could be down at he could be down at say nine by the time we get to the Australian Open uh, not Australian Open US Open swing and he's not the ninth best player so you're going to be seeding him nine he's going to be coming across Novak Djokovic in the last 16 of the US Open and I, I think that's the problem. Well, it's quite funny you say that, Calvin, because I think one of the, you know, I use humorous lightly in this, but in the, when you consider Wimbledon's decision was kind of to stop uh, the possibility, or what part of it was to stop the possibility of Russian players kind of being heralded and, you know, all that kind of sports washing stuff. One, one consequence of this decision, of course, is that Medvedev just jumped straight back to world number one because yeah, he's Djokovic is the bloke who's going to lose 2,000 points. Um yeah, just just to clarify that, um, uh, which I think, and I tweeted this morning, a slightly mad um, upshot of this decision is that the points from Wimbledon 2021 will fall off everyone's record when Wimbledon comes around and be replaced with nothing. So, I mean, that's why Martin Fuksovic, for example, is going to take such a hit. And that's why Daniil Medvedev is virtually guaranteed to be world number one in the first week of July. Uh, which, of course, is, as you say, George, it, it wouldn't. it would be funny if it weren't quite so ludicrous. Um, the the kind of the the wild thing for me is that this was a decision taken ostensibly about fairness, and that's what the statement says. It says it's not fair to Russian and Belarusian players, but equally, as you say, it's now creating some unfairness on sort of a random group of players who did well at Wimbledon last year and are all of a sudden just going to lose, or or a random group of players who expect to do well at Wimbledon this year. Um, I know we don't always like Nick Kyrgios, but he probably is going to make the third or fourth round of Wimbledon, and that's a big deal for someone who's ranked 75 in the world. And all of a sudden, yeah, OK, he's going to make, what's third round prize money, 160-odd grand, but, you know, he's not going to get any points, which otherwise he should expect to get. Yeah, you know, these are transformative tournaments, you know, beyond the stars you know someone a qualifier makes it to round three of Wimbledon that that completely changes their career that basically keeps them in the top 100 for the next year and guarantees them kind of getting slam points uh slam prize money the whole time it, you know as I said I, I can't see many players turning down the opportunity to go and play at Wimbledon because the prize money is so big and is ultimately why these a lot of these lower ranked players want to get into these tournaments is to fund their the rest of their years essentially you know it is that kind of important um but you know you'd be pretty upset if you had you know i'm thinking someone like bosic van der zanschult last year for example you know what did he get to like quarterfinals of the us open fourth mm. round you know if if he played that tournament and not had ranking points he'd still be in qualifying for the next slam you know as it is he's now seeded for the french open because that was a, a springboard for him that. to go forward i was re- i was doing the draw yesterday and i i was just on thursday sorry i was blown away i i could i was like bosic van der Zanschli was a seeded player at a grand slam i mean literally like a year ago in my head he was basically a meme because <laughs> he's just like because he he was this like big bloke big serve and hilarious name that i was never going to be able to spell or pronounce and now he's like a legitimate tennis player. And as you say, George, it, these Grand Slams are springboards. Yes, they're massive financial boons, but 
the the ranking points really do matter. Um, it it feels unfair as you. I think Calvin. I think you summed it up well. That it it's a giant mess. What do we think the the next step is? Like, what's the reaction to the reaction? I, I don't know. I mean, what I do wonder is when Wimbledon made this decision. Did do you think they thought about this? Do you think they thought the ATP could come and take the ranking points away? Because I, I don't think they do. I think it was just they rushed into it. They wanted to make a big statement, which yeah, I'm sure the intentions were good, but these these problems weren't unforeseeable that they were going to happen. What In regards to what the next step is, I don't think they can go back to freezing the ranking points, as I was saying in our WhatsApp group this morning, because I think all that does is it swaps the is it swaps the unluckiness, I don't know if that's a word, onto another group of players. Like, mm. you can you can defend from last year, but then, say, for example, Carlos Alcaraz could go, wait a minute, why does Matteo Berrettini get the points from Wimbledon last year and I don't get any? Mm. He's in no sort of form. He's not even playing. I'm playing and I'm, I'm fancying my chances of winning this slam. Mm. So it, the, the players who may come into it in good form this year, the, the big servers, they may think, I've got a chance of picking some points up here. Why does Martin? Why should Martin Fuksovic stay at sixteen in the world when the half of his points are from this one tournament? Hmm. Like I, I don't think he would have made the. I don't know what he made last year. Maybe quarters. I guess. Third quarters, fourth last, round. I think. Last sixteen. Yeah. Hell of a quiz question that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, they may go. You know, somebody may go. What? Why should he have those points? Why does he have them for two years? Because hmm. because of some mad decision that was taken by some rich people in a boardroom in South London. I mean, I... there's a few kind of things, I guess, from these statements that have kind of shone through, haven't they? That the, the ATP and WCA have basically said Wimbledon took a unilateral decision. They're really unhappy that there was less kind of dialogue with everyone else, which I, I think is a totally fair point, to be honest. You know, and that is just a general problem in tennis that you've got all these massive bodies and no one actually kind of talking with each other. And we had it with the French Open during the pandemic, didn't we, where they just were like, oh, our tournament can't happen. We're just going to drop this in September without telling anyone and you're just going to deal with it. Um, so, you know, it, it has long been a problem. Um, in terms of other next steps, I, I, there was a bit of an ominous point of Wimbledon's statement where they were saying, you know, we're, we're going to take our time to respond. We're in talks with the rest of the Grand Slams. So that, that implies to me there will be some significant hit back from them. And I, I do think there is quite a big power shift if, if the slams do come together which you know is by no means a guarantee don't get me wrong but they've they've got shared interests to protect and you know the tours is rare for them to go after one slam significantly for fear of the grand slam board and what could happen if they if they lash back so be interested to see how that goes but what can they do like they what, can form what... a new set of rankings they can pull away they can remove their ranking points from the tour they can keep their revenue not support could the tours. Could they remove you know. their ranking points from the tour? Well, they could set up their new ranking points, for example. You know, that's a genuine thing that's been discussed what, in the back for, eight for weeks years. Year? For eight weeks, for, for four tournaments. But then they'd even... launch other events around it. You know, they'd literally be a tear away. That, this is genuinely been spoken about in the back rooms for a long time for people who are unset, unsettled by the mm. calendar. You know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, <laughs> but I'd be very surprised if it did happen because ultimately I think everyone in tennis is a bit of a pussycat when it comes down to it, which is... Almost why I'm slightly surprised we've got to this stage, but it'll be. Uh, they've got big, significant threats they can use against the tour, and I think 
underestimate the value of the slams at your peril. They really are such vital cogs in these uh, in the tennis ecosystem. I think that would depend though on the other slams agreeing with what Wimbledon have done. Like we don't know if we don't know if the US Open think you know the people who run the US Open might think what, we're not we're not banning Russian players. So then if they're not going to do that, they think why why should we take a so hit on that? I'd say there's kind of two sides to that. They might not necessarily agree with the decision, but they'd agree with the rights for a country to make that sort of decision. Mm. But the idea that in ripping away points from a slam is like a direct attack on the Grand Slam kind of entities. I don't know. I I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not involved in these conversations. I can't speak accurately to what they're saying. So it's it's always hard to say. Again, though, I'll say, and just quickly, because I say this all the time, what, what do we think happens if this war is still going on in a year's time? Is Wimbledon not having ranking points next year? Yeah, I think probably Wimbledon back down. Al- but, then, although, uh... but then you've got to ask, then questions will be asked, right? Why Why did we waste last year? What's changed? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. They've, they've created, as you say, Calvin, a, a very difficult position for themselves to back out of. Um, you know, and when you're at the bottom of a hole, stop digging. Um, but I... I think what's interesting, and we kind of talked about this last time, and I don't want to go on about it too much, is that everyone, I think we've all spoken to people who were either involved in the decision or, or know people who were by the board, and they like were absolutely convinced that it was the right decision. That There was no real semblance of a dissenting voice within the board. I think it was kind of mooted, they talked about it, and really the only difficulties were how it would, how they would enact it and you know, how they would cope with it and how they would spin it. Um, I don't think really anyone on that board thought, I think this is a bit much, lads. And of course, they had governmental backing, um, which probably does make it easier for them to make that decision because they think, well, we've got the British government on side, we'll be all right. Just worth saying on the flip side of that, I mean, you've got Bianca Andreescu coming out saying the players weren't consulted by the tours on this kind of decision as well, which also which just feels... Also, that's also not true. But, well, it's sort of true. I mean, I, I, I messaged a couple of players. There was this WTA call. Um, I think that was on Wednesday, Calvin. I think you might be able to back yeah. up on that. And they spoke to some players on WTA about what was going on. Um, it seemed that the WTA were a little bit dismissive of some players' views. Um, I messaged four or five different WTA players um, of various different statuses, and none of them were on that call. So it doesn't feel like it was like a you know an all hands meeting to use a, a term from from the business world. Um, I mean, the obvious thing would have been to to poll the players, and and this is this is we come back to having a players' union because what what you should do is have a union. You sit down, you have an emergency meeting. You poll the players on what the reaction would be, and then you take that to the world. And you know that was what would happen if, if you know, at my office, if something happened, the National Union of Journalists chapter for the newspaper would call a meeting, we'd talk about it, and then that we'd have a vote on our response. And ultimately, they'd never come to this decision if they did that. I don't think. I, I, I think you'd no. be. I'd be astonished if you got more than three percent support from the player body. The majority would be Russian and Belarusian. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably fair. I mean, Dan Evans came out yesterday and and said that it didn't seem right or fair. Um, I know Stu Fraser in the Times had an anonymous British player calling it effing ridiculous or words to that effect. Um, yeah, I think it's fair to say that the player support for it would have been pretty minimal. But it, it does also seem to me that most... I mean, 
what's the player support been like, Calvin? You'll, you'll know, you talked to a lot of players. What was the player support like for the ban in the first place? Um, I would say some, somewhere between apathy and they didn't agree with it. Mm. I didn't speak to anybody, I don't think, off the top of my head, who said, yeah, definitely the right decision. Yeah. Again, I'll come back to it. Tennis players are independent contractors, and a lot of these guys are friends with a lot of the Russian players. They, they know how closely connected or not they are to that sort of setup. They know that they almost en masse, I would say, probably entirely en masse, don't agree with what's happening in Ukraine and they can't say anything about it. Mm. And they feel like pro their mates are probably just being punished for no reason. The one group we probably should mention who are clearly against it are the Ukrainian players. And they are furious with the tours. You know, the, people like Dol Gopolov, um, Kostyuk, they're all... I imagine Sergei Stokovsky is not very impressed. Big, big statement saying this is like a, a pro-Russian move and you know, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily that, but you know that it's easy to forget that that. You know, I suppose when they're putting it in the context of what's happening in their country, this all feels fairly small and insignificant, and it's kind of hard to move away from that from from their perspective. So when we're talking about the Russians being hard done by, I think they, they need to be mentioned as well. I, th I thought it was a bit much. I can't remember if it's from Starkovsky or Dolgopolov. They, one of them started having a go at the Russian players because they hadn't come out and condemned the regime and this kind of thing. And as we've discussed, they cannot do that. Let, let's not get into having a go at the Russian players here. They're, mm. they, they're, I would say, the innocent party in this, as are the Ukrainians, obviously, Ukrainians in general, not just tennis players. The Russian players, as far as I know, haven't said anything that they should be criticised for. And I think one or two of the Rus the Ukrainian players were starting to get into that kind of area of having a pop at the Russians. Which is kind of like, uh, yeah, and, and you're right, and I agree with you, but also but that's kind of inevitable, like when you have war between two countries yeah. and like it's pretty passionate and, you know, it, it's kind of how, how the, 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 what's it called, the phony war kind of works, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I remember on that, I remember I think it was the 92 Wimbledon and... Monica Sellers and Goran Ivanovic refused to dance together if they won it. There was an instance where I think they they both could have won it and they'd made it clear that they weren't going to do... There's, there's a, it's a tradition that the winner of the men's and women's dance together on the night at the ball. And because it was obviously the time of the Yugoslavian war, they'd made it clear that they wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I love that. It, like dancing together at the ball is like the international incident. That's as much as Wimbledon can tolerate when it comes to war. Um, as as just... it happened, they both lost in the finals. So <laughs> <laughs> um, just a brief point that was raised by um, Matt Willis on, on Twitter, uh, which probably means Calvin didn't see it. Um, so saying some, some historical context for, for this kind of um, Wimbledon versus the ATP uh, spat is the um, 1973 boycott um, which again involved Yugoslavia um, and was a sort of political move. 12 of the 16 seeds boycotted Wimbledon in 1973. Do you know what happened to attendances? It was the second highest attendance in Wimbledon's history at the time. 300,000 people turned up. Um, the, uh, as you mentioned, George, the reality is that people don't really care about ranking points. It has impact, clearly, on the sport and probably would end up being something people cared about in the long run, but... It's not going to change who goes to Wimbledon. They've already paid no. their tickets. Yeah, well, quite. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, the, the tickets are all totally sold out. So, I mean, from Wimbledon's perspective, 
it's a bit annoying for them, but I, I really don't <laughs> see the players not turning up. There's not going to be an issue with crowds. It, it's not that big a deal for them. As Calvin says, if this drags on into a few years, it becomes a big problem. Or if there's, you know, some sort of bizarre move to attempt Wimbledon not to be a slam next year, which, you know, is definitely not going to happen. So that's a stupid thing to say anyway, but it's just not going to affect them in the long run, but as far what, as I can what see. What does not being a slam look like? Like, what, what, <laughs> like, like, it's not this like. Is a, have... This is Djokovic's long theory of taking the slams to Abu Dhabi and stuff, isn't it? Where they just follow the money and have big new events. I mean, it, it is happening in sports, isn't it? You know, you're taking franchises and matches to different places etc it could so what you want to take, to tennis. take, take I, I don't want to james i promise <laughs> you i do not want to i'm firmly against that i mean it would be quite funny if like you know wimbledon are obviously planning this massive redevelopment they're building you know another stadium court in the park and um a whole load more outside courts be quite funny if they finally finished that and then somehow lost grand slam status and just have these grass tennis courts that don't really have anything to do with um, although it would that, be kind of tragic. That is, I mean, it's not about Wimbledon, but it, it's one potential knock-on effect from this that we've probably not really touched upon about kind of the LTA side of things, because obviously they've kind of, at the minute, kind of come out scot-free um, in terms of keeping their points because the Russians can go to other events, etc. But there is a potential knock-on effects regarding Queens and stuff. Um, there's big talks around an ATP masters gardenzi's very keen to have that and queens was kind of thought to be in the driving seat with um lta chiefs kind of lobbying gardenzi earlier this year and this uh you have to think really really will not have helped their cause very much i can see that going to haller and you know that'd be a big problem for for queens they'd have to accept lower status they'd have to move to a different week fewer points probably um so that that's just another kind of sideshow going on in british tennis um um just uh, i'm sure we've covered this before but it bears repeating um what's the the kind of deal with queens if, it, if they wanted to make queens a masters do they have the the kind of requisite stadiums because you're obviously required to have a certain number of capacity stadiums i would have thought that the center court might be big enough but they've got no other court with enough seats on it so it much smaller than monte carlo yeah i think I think it's doable, basically. My understanding is there there has been pitches to do it, and they think they can do it. Um, I mean, presumably they could, they could just change the rules. I mean, you know, they can do what they want. It's it's their tour. You know, I th- I, I'm pretty sure you're required to have two courts over a certain capacity, but presumably if they wanted to have a, a Masters event at Queen's, they just could, and, you know, no one would bat an eyelid, presumably. Um, I thought so. Speaking of Queens, tennis care, don't they? <laughs> uh, speaking of Queens, um, and since we're talking about Wimbledon, we, we might as well cover a little bit of the uh, grass court season that is starting next week in earnest. Um, Andy Murray is going to start at the Surbiton Challenger, which uh, I'm really I'm not going to be here because it's in the second week of Roland Garros, and I'm going to be in Paris. But uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing, you know, obviously every seat will be full when Murray plays on what I think quite generously is termed the grandstand court at Surbiton. Um, I imagine there'll be people on step ladders and, you know, peering out of windows just just to get a glimpse of him. Um, Calvin, you, you know Surbiton very well, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really know how they're going to cope with it. Uh, yeah, it's in the middle of a sort of living area, I guess you would say. Um, 
it's not Re- got the residential is the word residential that's it yeah lost my mind there um <laughs> yeah like a living room yeah yes. no, it's not in <laughs> just, a big just in room. someone's living room <laughs> um yeah i mean it's not got the easiest access but then again they've had i think in the past they've had some bit pretty big players play there players okay. that have gone out of the u.s open uh, sorry french open early um right. i think they'll be ready and yeah I, I don't think it'd be a massive problem it's a big club but um, there's a there's a lot of once you're in there, there's a lot of space. Right. Okay. Um, are you surprised that he's he's gone and played that? I mean, you know, he's obviously going to play a lot of grass court tournaments if he. No, if he I think it, I felt pretty sure he was always going to play it. I think um, it's it's one of those that it's a challenger in theory, but anybody who doesn't fancy winning the French Open tends to play it or tends to consider it. They may not even always play it. Right. Um, there's also news that Jack Draper has got a wild card for Queens. He, of course, would have liked to be playing uh, in the French Open, but pulled out of qualifying uh, with a, a minor leg injury. But um, he was pretty much back on court within 48 hours, pulling out. So uh, clearly, quite minor. Um, had he made the French main draw, I, I imagine he might not have needed a wild card to Queens. But George, he, he had a great run there last year. Of course, he beat Yannick Sinner, or you know, which is a decent result for anyone, albeit Sinner doesn't love the grass, but. I mean, he he could do some real damage there this year, couldn't he? Yeah, he definitely could. Um, it's a bit of a shame he didn't make the French, to be honest. I mean, I don't know exactly how bad his physical status was, but you know, guys like Jack are capable of winning matches at Slams, and that that can really, as we've kind of talked about with Wimbledon, that can really boost your career. And he's he's not going to get a free shot at Wimbledon ranking points this year, which is. Maybe where he's thinking about prioritising. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Actually, that's a massive, massive bin for him. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if this decision had come out maybe three weeks earlier, he might have tried to push him for himself through French qualies. So that's complete speculation, of course. But you know that this will feel like a bit of a disappointing period for Jack, I imagine, in terms of he, he he's ready to really climb up the rankings and be a regular part of the tour. I think the way he's playing. Um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully, he just wins Queens or something and bolts there anyway. We'll uh, yeah, it would be great, great if he won Queens, that's for sure. Um, next, we're going to talk about the French Open draw, some fantasy tennis, uh, and whether Daniil Medvedev is really gonna. I mean, it, he really could go out in the first round. Now, we can actually talk about some tennis. Uh, apologies if you didn't want to hear the first half hour of uh, wranglings between Wimbledon and the ATP, but it is the big story in town at the moment. However, hopefully tomorrow, Sunday, the French Open gets underway and we can start talking about tennis. I, I am genuinely very excited um, about the French Open, not just because I'm going for the first time for the whole fortnight. Um, I've never been to Roland Garros, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that one. And one of the joys of living in London is it's literally a two-hour train journey away, so um, there's not even much hassle with flying or jet lag. Um, the draw was made on Thursday, and it uh, well, I don't know if it left us disappointed, but it certainly left us um, with some taste buds tingling. Uh, the top half of the men's draw really being the headline. Uh, Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal and Carlos Alcaraz all in there. Uh, Djokovic slated for a quarterfinal meeting with Rafael Nadal and then potentially a semi-final meeting with Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, the bottom half of the draw, Daniil Medvedev's half, wide open. Stefan Tsitsipas is in there. Kasper Ruud, Andre Rublev, Yannick Sinner. I mean, any one of these people could make a semi-final, um, if not a final, quite frankly. Uh, George... How, I mean, 
it is wide open, isn't it? There's no obvious uh, semi-final or final from the bottom half, is there? And you've got to back Sissipas for the final at the moment. Um, the caveat being, you know, Lorenzo Massetti is a really, really tough first round. That that is not a player you really want to be running into that early. Um, mm. he, he does have a winning record against him though, so I'm sure he'll fancy his chances. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Medvedev is in no form because he's just not played. So, I mean, he lost to Richard Gasquet last week, which is not a great result, really, <laughs> for um, anyone, really, these days. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, Kasper Ruud will really fancy his chances as well. He'll be pleased to be in that half. He's another guy who's been in pretty good form on the clay over the last few years. Uh, I'm sure we'll come on to fantasy in a bit. I, I've basically just taken a few random blokes from the bottom half of the draw, just in kind of hit and hope fashion. Uh, Goffin, you know, he's he's played a few good matches, won a title in Marrakesh, and then gave Nadal a really good scare in Madrid. So, you know, he's he's maybe one who might, and he's he's been there and done it before in terms of being a Grand Slam quarter finalist. You know, that's sometimes what it comes down to. Marin Cilic was another one I was vaguely considering on the same point. Um, I mean, that is um, a real indicator of just how open the draw is, that you're considering Marin Cilic to have a deep run at the French Open. Yeah. It's not exactly a surface that, that suits his game. I mean, he has made two quarterfinals there, but given that he's been in the final of every other slam, um, it's clearly his weakest one. Yeah, and the the other name I'll kind of put in there, who's having a really good year, and actually I did pick him in the air, is uh, Kesmanovic. He's, mm. he's been in really, really good form this year playing some great stuff. He's due to meet Medvedev round three, but there's no guarantee Medvedev will get there um, mm. at the minute. I'm, you know, for what it's worth, I probably think it will just be a Sissipas Medvedev semi-final because Medvedev is just so good regardless of what the surface is and it's not the worst draw in the world. But yeah, worth taking a few gambles if you are playing our, our fantasy game, I think. Um, I mean, Daniil Medvedev basically said that he wasn't going to win the French Open uh, because he has only played uh, one match since having uh, surgery on a hernia problem uh, after the American hardcourt swing. He went out to Geneva and he lost 6-2, 7-6 to Richard Gasquet, as you mentioned. Um, He's got Facundo Facundo Bagnis in the first round. Is that how you say his name? I apologise if I've butchered that. Uh, and then either Ricardo Barankis or Laszlo Ger, the Serbian, in the second round. And then, as you mentioned, Kesmanovic um, in the third round. Uh, Calvin, we often talk about players who need matches and players who don't need matches. But I suppose when it comes to injury, it's just potluck, is it, to, to see how fit you can get in a, a week or two? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, first on that, I, I saw some stat in the week, which was absolutely blew my mind, that Richard Gasquet, with that win, has now beaten in his career a player ranked in every ranking position from one to one hundred. Yeah, and I just wonder like, who's who's worked that out. How do you even work that out? Like, like, He's been waiting for that day for about three yeah, years. Yeah, he still hasn't like, been the missing world one two. in my Gasquet yeah. bingo, <laughs> like the old. Panini sticker book. (laughs) Every slam he's hoping that Gasquet draws the second seed. um, I just can't, I can't understand how you've, how anyone has ever managed to figure that out. But anyway, um, yeah, I'd agree with Medvedev. He's not going to win the uh, French Open. It's not on his best surface anyway, um, but he'll want some matches in, although the question what, what he wants matches in for now, but he strangely said he's going to play the grass, didn't he? He's going to play yeah, all the grass. three tournaments, I think. Yeah. yeah, is he playing Halla, Rosmarlin and, and somewhere else maybe? Which um, which makes me wonder, like, do they still think there's a 
outside chance, very outside chance that they they end up playing Wimbledon. Because I don't uh, see why. Well, the I points, mean, well, I guess, are more not? important to him. But points, yeah. cash, like keeping doesn't active. Need cash. Doesn't need the cash though. Well, um, you know, but I mean, that's. But why I mean, coming, it. but what I'm saying is, coming back from an injury, you'd there'd be an argument for looking at it and going, look, I'm coming back from this hernia. My strongest period is the the US hard court swing. I might just take an extra five weeks off here and mm. just just get ready for the hard courts. Yeah, it does um, seem like an unusual. But I pro I said I potentially would have skipped the French Open if I were him as well because realistically he's had one match. He's only just back. Yeah. But I suppose it, you know it's all points and it's just match practice. But yeah, it does seem like a a strange decision. Um, I I mentioned the top half and and Djokovic Nadal as a potential quarterfinal. Calvin, I mean. If you were Novak Djokovic, I mean, obviously you want to avoid Nadal at all costs, but prefer to play him in the quarters rather than, say, the semis? I, I wouldn't think Djokovic... I, I don't think it makes much difference for Djokovic. Although there was that interesting thing that came out in the week, wasn't it, that he'd, I'd seen somebody said that they'd seen him a few years ago and he was watching a match in the locker room of Federer playing and Federer ended up winning and Djokovic was furious because uh, he was going to have to play him later. Was it you, George's George? story. Yeah. That was, was my George? story. I was I'm so white. glad you think it was interesting, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the difference between much of a reaction, but Probably made sharing up. my stories but, back. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, initially you'd think he doesn't he, he doesn't care. I think quarterfinals, semifinals, it doesn't make any difference, mm. to be fair. Um, in terms of Carlos Alcaraz's draw, um, he has uh, a lucky loser, Juan Ignacio Londero, in the first round, which feels like the best possible draw. Um, then potentially Ramos Vignolas, Sebastian Corda, Cam Norrie maybe in the fourth round. Um, but really the the semi the quarterfinal matchup, sorry, with Alexander Zverev, um, if they both get there, is the one that we're looking to. I mean, obviously he's beaten him and he, he quite frankly battered him in Madrid. Um how representative do we think that is, Calvin? I mean, obviously, Zverev had come off that 5am finish. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I think that Alcaraz is better than, um, than Zverev. I don't think there's any question of that. You just think he's a better player? Yeah, I think he's comfortably better now. I'd be surprised if if it happened. If he, if he, I don't see what situations that Zverev would beat him in. Um, George? You know, I think yeah, I agree. I think Alcaraz is better, but I wouldn't write off Zverev. It's, you know, Zverev's still one of the very top guys in the world who can win big matches. As we said, you know, in slams, maybe that hasn't quite happened yet. But but Alcaraz, you know, he's still not been beyond a, a Grand Slam quarterfinal. So, you know... It's only played about I three. Can, I know, I know. But we still can't sit around and say, oh, Alcaraz is definitely going to win this tournament. He's got all... You know, if he gets into a few meaty five-setters earlier in the tournament is he is he going to be able to to hold it physically and mentally probably yeah but really question physicality yeah yeah, so, <laughs> he, yeah he looks like a bloke who really struggles with that come on guys i'm trying to create some intrigue here <laughs> no, yeah. on, on top of, on top of that what i just said though like i was going to come to that that like look at look at zverev's record in slams what part of any of us thinks that zverev's beating alcaraz in the latter stage of a slam he's, has he still never beaten anyone in the top 10 in the world in a slam uh it's almost certainly true um, or he might have one, but yeah, he, he as as you say, like he also seems to have a massive problem with nerves at the moment. Like he, we all think that he gets nervous at Grand Slams, and he clearly does. He drops sets, he gets he gets stuck into massive five setters with people that he should never stuck in. Obviously, his record at Slams until the last two years was poor, um, and when he was playing in Munich, and I I keep going back to this, but I've just never really heard a player talk about it. 
he said he was so nervous. He lost to Holger Rune, and he hadn't played in Germany in front of fans, I think, for three years um, since before the pandemic. And he said he was so nervous. And I, I just think that the the best guys, they say they get nervous, but they usually say it after they win. And, you know, they don't actually really seem to... Yeah, they get tight. We know Federer gets tight. We know Djokovic can get tight. But they usually come through it. And I just increasingly feel like Zverev has basically a bottle issue. I mean, the second serve is the obvious point, but... The French is probably statistically his best tournament, I'd imagine, in terms of he seems to post the most regular quarters and runs there. He's a good clay court player. Like... He is a good clay court player. I mean, I think and the nerves is an interesting thing because it's, we've got this really funny change of balance in this situation now where guys like Zverev, Sissipas... Medvedev to a slightly lesser degree, seeing as he's always kind of already kind of broken the Grand Slam barrier. But it's almost like that generation's suddenly been <laughs> disregarded for Alcaraz, and they're kind of the underdogs entering matches with him. You know, that, I don't know if I don't know if he'd be nervous in that match. I don't think he goes into that match thinking, "God, I'm the massive favourite here." I think mm. and that that may may suit him. He's had, he's had some good. You know, I know he's lost these a lot of these matches, as, as Gavin said, but he's had some good slam matches where he's played really well against guys like Djokovic over the last couple of years where he's pushed him really deep US Open uh, for example um, he's had some bad Grand Slam matches as well don't get me wrong the US Open final against the team stands out but he still won two sets in that so he's <laughs> could, could be worse <laughs> strangely I'd say the player who had most think he'd be in the top 10 I'd probably back him to beat Rude to be fair but the, after Rude the player I'm most for him to beat is Djokovic if he played him in a slam, his record against him is it's so good, mm. and he he's been close with him in slams a couple of times. I think yeah. it's just a quite a nice matchup for him, and Djokovic doesn't really fancy playing him. Seeing as we're on the topic of Zverev, I quite enjoyed some kind of quote mark quotations from him this week, where he was kind of running the rule over the draw. I guess we've all sort of started picking up Alcaraz ahead of. Nadal now, which seems almost like blasphemy <laughs> in some ways. Um, but Zverev was saying he's been watching Rafa and he's got an extra 20 miles an hour on his forehand or whatever. He's suddenly moving amazingly. I mean, th this is a court that this guy is so good on. Are, are we really categorically ruling him out at this stage or can he come through Djokovic? I mean, I, th I think Djokovic is, I think Djokovic is going to win the French Open. So, uh, which I know isn't controversial, given that he's world number one and top seed. <laughs> yeah. Bit of bit of a Belshaw prediction Shock. that one. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think it will come down to genuinely, and it's amazing to say about Rafa. But with the injury that he's got, you know, this um, it's called Muller Weiss syndrome, um, and I'm very grateful to Eleni, one of our regular listeners, for um, breaking it down for me in 280 characters. Pretty impressive. Um, and it's a very rare kind of degenerative bone disease in his foot. And I genuinely think it depends who can take, like, almost like body punches in, uh, in, in boxing. Like, who can take something out of him in the early rounds. I don't think he'll lose in the first four rounds. Um, but, like, Botic might take some sets off him in the third round. You know, if Riley Apelka's playing very well at the moment and... If Apelka has a good serving day, it's hard to see him not getting at least a set off Rafa if they come into the fourth round. <laughs> is it hard to see? He's got an elite to... serve. You'll know if that happens, then I'll think Rafa's not winning it because Rafa at the, at the French just cleans up in the first round. Hmm. He's, he's, you don't pretty passive to have a 6-love, six 6-1, six, one, six, one. 
in the no. first two rounds. The amazing thing about those matches is they always last like almost three hours as well. He, the, he, yeah. They must have the record of the longest bagel sets in, in French Open history. Well, he's, yeah, he had was that record. I think it was on the top of my head, I'll say 2014, but might not be, where he didn't lose a set in the tournament, but he only won 51% of the points played, which was a remarkable. That's bizarre. He's so that. clutch. So clutch. Um, let's move on to the women's draw because we, we haven't really touched it. Uh, Iga Strontek, of course, the top seed. I think she'll be reasonably happy, um, although her fourth round matchup is potentially Yelena Ostapenko, who has a 3-0 and record and is the last person to beat Iga Strontek um, in Dubai back in February. Uh, George, you're looking quizzically. Do you actually think is it's it, quite I, a poor draw? No, I was just thinking, is it Ostapenko or Halep? It is Ostapenko or, or Halep. Neither of which are a good matchup, if you ask me. No, I think... I'd probably back Halep to get there over Ostapenko personally, particularly with a uh, Calvin's favourite coach working his magic. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, gone hey. off a bit, hasn't it? Since that, <laughs> since he rejuvenated her career, according to some, that's the last couple of weeks. I haven't quite backed that up. Yeah, I, but the women's. I mean, it just, I just can't look past Beyonce to be honest at the minute. Mm. Uh, well, if is... you could try and look past at the other 127 players in the draw, otherwise it'd be quite a short segment. Good, yes, on Strabore. I've picked, a, Named I've picked another one. I picked a Coco Goff, and my team name is To Goff or To Goff Elm. Uh, that's not bad. Coco Goff, incidentally, uh, graduated from high school this week, which is <laughs> quite impressive given that she's also so, being a professional tennis player. Definitely winning the tournament then off the back of uh, heavy celebrations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, heavy celebrations <laughs> appears to be posing in front of the Eiffel Tower while wearing a mortarboard, which I suppose so. Um, I was quite surprised to see Barbara Kajikova at the bottom of the draw. Not because, I mean, that is where the number two seed goes, but I was quite surprised to see her there at all, really. She hasn't played, I think, since the hard courts. Um, she's had what I believe to be an elbow problem. Um, Great draw for her. I mean, bloody hell. I mean, if, if, if she is fit, which I severely doubt but if she if she was in kind of fitness and form you, you'd really back her chances to get to the final and the bottom half is crazy open possibly even more than the men's to be honest well i think it's a bit like the men's in that it has a clear like like on should make the final if you i mean she's playing really well she's a brilliant play court player uh, she, she has no one really of note like these are the seeds in her quarter petra kvitova Angelique Kerber and Emma Raducanu. Now, Kerber's having a horrible season at the moment. Um, Pet we all know who Petra Kvitova is and, and what to expect from her, which is not a huge amount. And then Raducanu is both not fit and not great on clay and is a kind of false seed because she's really should be about world number 50. And then you look at her, what, what you make your face. I, I think she's top half, though, isn't she, Jabor? Nope, she is uh, section five. She's top of the bottom half. Top of the bottom. Oh, I've just no. misread the draw then. Oh, you're totally right. You're totally right. Great. That's fine then. That's, <laughs> that's better than I thought it was then. That's not so bad. Calvin, <laughs> I assume you would, you would pick Shrontek over the field. Yeah, I can't see anybody else winning it, to be honest. Although, the women's tournament, isn't it? So, hmm. I'd be very surprised if... It's the nature of tennis, to be honest. If you look at it, I mean, you'd think it's got to be Alcaraz or Djokovic in the men's top half, Svitsipas in the second, in the bottom half, Svontek in the top half, Jabur in the second half, in, in the bottom half. But I guarantee you in two weeks' time, two <laughs> weeks' time on Saturday, we won't be talking about that those finals. Mm. Something, somebody will lose. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I always sometimes play a bit of a game with myself, which is where I just pick a random name and think, oh, I wonder if she'll make a semi, because it's entirely possible. Uh, the one I've just sort of randomly scrolled to is Alison Van Oitvank, um, which I've always <laughs> liked partly because it's a great name. Um, and yeah, she's she's Belgian, which it would be funny. And to be fair, she did make a quarterfinal of the French, admittedly, about a decade ago. You've got to stick a quid on that now, James. You'll probably get about <laughs> five hundred to one for that. Speaking of speaking of betting and the French Open, Igor Shontek is an even money favourite. Now, for people who don't understand betting, that basically means she is better than a fifty percent chance of winning the French Open. Now, in a boxing match, if someone's even money, fifty percent two horse race, yeah, fine. But to be a fifty percent chance of winning in a hundred and twenty eight horse race. It's just, it, it's insane to me. I mean, I've not been able to find out whether there's ever been a shorter... I'd be surprised if there has ever been a shorter prize favourite for a Grand Slam. Because, I mean, I don't know, Federer, Wimbledon, like, in peak Federer, possibly, but... It's uh, also a great bet, isn't it? It's buying money. I mean, I suppose... I, I said this, I mean, um, you know, bet responsibly and um, don't gamble more than you can afford to lose, but... I said, having seen even money, Shontek, I would take, I mean, six players at sort of between 10 and 20 to 1. Because I just feel like, as you kind of said, Calvin, someone's going to lose. And it, it might well be Shontek. Like, it, it could happen. Um, and if she loses, I think there are only about five or six women who could win it, to be perfectly honest. Um, so, yeah, I would probably take those those against Shontek, albeit that the most likely, if you have to pick one, the most likely answer is Shontek. If I can pick six who aren't Shontek, I think that's more likely. It's it's funny, isn't it? I mean, the, the betting, I mean, I, I still can't believe, I can't get my head around the idea that Alcaraz is the same odds as Novak Djokovic. I, I just can't, I can't get my head around that. Like, I know he's been brilliant this year, but, you know, we're talking about, even in Sviontek's case, she's a one-time Grand Slam champion. Mm. She's only been to one final, you know? Yeah. She, she's evens if she gets past the quarterfinals for me, but she's not consistently gone past the fourth round of every slam. You know, it's it's not it's by it's far from a given, even if she's ridiculously good and kind of gone to a new planet this year. I, you know, I think there's always a bit of recency bias, but I'll always take a Djokovic over Alcaraz at this stage, given the history and knowing how to navigate these tournaments. They're they're totally different from the tour events. Um. George, this is basically a fantasy tennis question, but um, I can phrase it as just a normal life question. Um, who's your dark horse in the WTA uh, tournament to make the semi-finals? Oh, oh, I don't know. I, I haven't got it based on semi-finals. I, I can read you my fantasy team though, if you like. In that, <laughs> oh, great. Explain, give you my ten options. So I've gone Djokovic over Sissipas because Sissipas just feels like a bit of a gimme to get to the final and was tempting. Novak's mm. got a bit of kind of, but as you say, James, I think he'll win the tournament. So Djokovic, got Alcaraz over Rafa mm. because just seems like he'll get to the semis. On Ketsmanovic, I think Chilich was my only other player I was really considering in that bracket. Which is says that the seventeen to, to thirty-two seeds? Yeah. Mm. David Goffin. So um, this is your unseeded player. So any unseeded player, player a... bit of form, bottom of half, uh, and then I've got. Gomboss is my qualifier. Who Gomboss? Norbert Gomboss. We, is, we there a, is there a better name in tennis? He loves a cheeky qualifying winner. I've got a feeling he might be playing another qualifier. He's playing, a, lucky, he's loser. playing lucky loser, Pedro Cachin. Yeah. So you're kind of hoping he'll win that. 
I wasn't yeah. particularly taken by any of the qualifiers. For those who uh, don't know the scoring system, um, effectively you get a point for every match win, but it's weighted depending on which player wins. So qualifiers, I think off the top of my head, get three points for a win. Um, if your unseeded player wins, you get two points for a win. Uh, your seeded players get one, and your uh, top four player gets half a point for a win. And then once you get into the second week, there are bonus points for, for each win at that stage. Um, talk to me about your WTA team, George. Yeah, no question about the first two, Sviantek and Jabur. I'd expect probably 90% picks of both of them from the field, to be honest. Um, Early signs are exactly that. I've reluctantly gone for Coco Goff as my mm, next seed. That. She's just Not got a decent you think decent got a draw, draw, bottom half. If we're talking about someone kind of potentially seeing the way through, she could meet Muguruza round three, but I think that's I don't, I don't, I think, Yeah, I'm not 100% convinced she's there. I, I just quite like her section of the draw. I think she's good on clay, typically, even if she's not in kind of top form. And I think it's a good section, so short chance. And then I've taken um, Bianca Andreescu, who I think is picking up into decent form. Um, another unseeded player, not a terrible draw, kind of in the bottom half as well, I think. Um so yes, I've gone for her, and then my qualifier, I've gone for Donna Vekic, who <laughs> Donna Vekic, or as as uh, an old colleague of mine calls her, R Donna. I've no idea why. He just always <laughs> did, and it made me laugh. You know that that's a player who's been top thirty in the world. As a, you know, I think she's playing another qualifier round indeed. one. She's um, playing um, Mirjam Bjorklund, the yeah. Swede. Who I don't think it'll be an easy match. To be fair, and you know Vekic isn't in amazing form, but. She's someone who is capable of a fourth round run. If you know, and that wouldn't be a great surprise. She's someone who's done well. That I mean, before. it would be because she's then got to be Anna Samova and then Sakari. Easy, easy, no problem. James. <laughs> no problem. She'll beat an injured Osaka in round two. No, um, yeah. Fair. So but, I mean, with Sakari's luck this year, she's probably going to get injured as well. I mean, she's the last like three months. She basically goes from injury to illness to injury. Um, so very interesting, George. Uh, if you want to play fantasy tennis and beat George, you have until Sunday morning to get your team in. Um, have I? Sorry, have I cut you off short? No, I was just going to say. I have to say that I think since we've been doing this, the French is always the one I feel least confident about, and it's the same again. Sometimes you know it just falls quite nicely. Yeah. The draws. I swear the French just always falls really awkwardly, and I'm just not <laughs> confident in anyone I've picked. So, yeah, good chances um, to beat me. Head to head to at Love Tennis Pod Twitter uh, to find the link to the form uh, to enter. Uh, it's multiple choice, so you know if you don't know who you want to pick, then just head over there and, and I don't know pin stick if you want. Um, you can't make changes to your team once the tournament starts, so it's not like fantasy football where you got to check it every day. What a nightmare that is! Um, <laughs> but you literally pick the team, and then I'll post the spreadsheet on our Twitter uh, so you can follow along. Um, I'll also put the links in the description to the podcast, uh, this podcast, so that you can uh, join in. Have you guys got some nailed on people you're definitely having in? Are you joining me in the Novak, Alcaraz, Fiontech, Jabor quadruple? Or have I, you got some tastier picks in my so early doors? I, I, there's a couple I, re- I really want to pick Pablo Carreño Busta. Um, because... I was tempted by him, but he's in he's sixteenth seed, isn't he? Because he's sixteenth so seed. If he was seventeenth seed, he'd be an absolute no. yeah, automatic pick. Um, but yeah, that was the main one that I kind of want. I think seventeen to thirty-two is going to be the the tricky area 
I mean, you basically just have to pick someone in the bottom half and, and hope. And Dan Evans was vaguely tempting. He might win a few. He's got, I mean, Calvin said the other day when the draw came out, he's you know he's got Francisco Cherendolo and then um, I think either Duckworth or Ema. Um, he's obviously got to see Sebastian in the third round, which isn't a great matchup. But um, yeah. Or Lorenzo Massetti, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Calvin, have you got any dark horses that are going to make their way into your, your stable? No, I don't think so. Um, I've not looked at it in detail yet, but I think I'll be going with uh, the obvious ones. It's yeah. a strange slam this time, isn't it? It seems pretty, pretty easy. Dried. Prick, predict who who's going to go. Mm. Places, seems it? seems that way. Um, it almost yeah. certainly means it won't be. <laughs> I will say on the Evans one, I think whoever wins in Evans and Cherandulo will definitely be either Duckworth or Ema. There you go. Dan Evans, decent pick for a third round spot, it would seem. Um, uh, a nice segue to talk about the other British uh, players. There's one other man in the draw. Um, commiserations to the qualifiers. Ryan Penniston, Paul Jubb, Liam Brady all beaten in qualifying. Albeit, I think they all lost to players who did end up qualifying. So um, no great shame in that. Uh, Cam Norrie, he's the number 10 seed. Uh, he has got wildcard Manuel Guinard in the first round who's 26 he has never won a main he's never played a main draw grand slam so feels like an opportunity i mean i don't really understand why necessarily he's got a wild card i mean he's a, a career high ranking of 151 I, I don't know if he's someone you might have come across calvin Gwynard. yeah yeah one of the players i coached used to uh, play against him ah. he's a big lad big unit quite cumbersome he can play. He beat Jack Draper, I think, um, last year. Mm. Um, but he's not a player who I would think is going to the top 50 in the world. Mm. Um, Cam Norrie uh, then has either Kubler or Kudler um, in my favourite matchup of the first round. Uh, Dominic Team or Karen Hatchinoff in the third round. I mean, you know, uh, we haven't really touched on Team. Um, we have a lot previously. George usually says, I think he's going to win today, and he's already lost. Um, he hasn't won a match in a year, uh, more than a year now. I think he's on a 10-match losing streak. About time for him to win seven in a row, then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, cl- the classic he's due one. Um, I mean, incidentally, Karen Hatchinoff's probably not an easy guy. I mean, Karen Hatchinoff has a good record on clay. Um, and I think he's someone we almost never talk about on any level. Like, I, I think his name might be mentioned the least of any top 30 player. It's really funny because my, my enduring kind of memory of Hatchinov is like Greg Rosetsky relentlessly predicting he was going to be like the next big thing coming through. And I was always just watching him like, no, he's not Greg. He's <laughs> like a top 10 player at best. Like, I just don't see any evolution in this guy's game to suggest he's going to like break I through. I think properly. he's probably not suffering from us not talking about him. The guy looks like the third Hemsworth brother. So, <laughs> <laughs> probably enough people talk about him, especially in the female population. Worldwide, so. And he, he, he also gets my other enjoying memory of him is John Isner. I think the first time he played against him being shocked that his name was Karen, because that's the name of Isner's mum. Karen, <laughs> I think. So that's just the other, other enjoyment. Also, he wears... it, you know, he's a good player, isn't he? Catching on, you know, I'm being a bit tongue in cheek there. He's obviously well, he won like, that guy Paris Masters, quarters. didn't he? Yeah, he won that beat... Paris Masters out of nowhere and beat Djokovic, and you thought he's yeah. really going to take off here, but it just that's, a, never that's did. a classic end of season result, isn't it? Like anyone who wins the ATP finals, we're like, yeah, next yeah. season's going to be huge, and it's just you no know, terrible. But yeah. um, I mean, let's let's not forget that Jack Sock won the Paris Masters. 
Um, it's, <laughs> it is a place that throws up slightly odd results. Um, yeah, Norrie, if he does come through, uh, Mr. Hatchinoff, uh, he will face potentially Carlos Alcaraz in the fourth round, which is not a match any of us are expecting him to... You mean uh, if he comes to... through team? <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> um, incidentally, uh, he's in some form, Cam Norrie, because he is playing today in a final in Lyon. Um, having said, like when he went out of the Australian Open... This year, he said that he was probably going to strip back his schedule a bit and target the Grand Slams. And, I mean, <laughs> this doesn't feel like targeting a Grand Slam, playing a final the day before the first round. But anyway, he's playing Alex Molkan, um, the Slovakian, who has Marion Vida in his corner. Uh, Novak Djokovic is his former head coach and could play Djokovic in, I think, the second round um, of the French Open, which would be a fun little matchup. But yeah, good luck, Cam. Um, he's beaten Cherendolo, Sebastian Baez and Holger Rune this week. All of whom are in quite good form. Um, so yeah, we're not mentioned Rune, have we? That's a bit of a surprise. He's surely going to win the first of his seventeen. Or <laughs> it is. Um, I couldn't tell you where he's sitting in the draw. Is he in the bottom half? He is in the bottom half. He's got Denis Shapovalov in the first round. Hard match. Yeah, I was going to say it's not an easy first half. He might win that. <laughs> okay. Um, might. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, George. He might win. That's kind of true. <laughs> true of all of them. It put it put me off picking either of them. Let's put it that way. I wouldn't I wouldn't put anyone above fifty five percent win rate in that match. Incredibly, uh, we've barely mentioned Emma Raducanu. In fact, we really haven't talked about her today. Um, she has got, I think, a really tricky little first round match. She's playing Linda Noskova, who is uh, sixteen years old, I believe, seventeen years old. Um, she won the junior French Open title last year, uh, and then she subsequently came through qualifying. Uh, to win uh, to win her place in the draw. I, I think, I mean, you, you sort of think getting a qualifier in the first round is a good result. I, th- I think there's a, a bit of jeopardy there, George. <laughs> I, I mean, look, it's a player who's ranked outside the top 120 or whatever normally, so it's a, it's never really a, a terrible, terrible draw unless you're unlucky enough to hit someone like Aslan Karatsev who's then going to storm onto the top 20 or whatever, but... <clears throat> I think Raducanu, you couldn't really ask for a better draw. A slam for her at the minute. Um, potential Kerber round three. I mean, that's that's a bit of a gimme on clay if she gets there. She's lost to Saznovic before. That's a potential second round player. Um, but yeah, I mean, until you're talking about Ons Jabor, when they meet in, I think, round four, potentially that you'd, you, you'd hope Raducanu can get through though. And, you know, Keep talking about points. She's going to lose her fourth round Wimbledon points as it stands, regardless of what she does there. Mm. So she can post a fourth round French Open to keep those on side, and then all she needs to do is win the US Open again to keep those, and so it'll be fine. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, she's slated to meet Ons Jabour uh, in the fourth round, which would be a pretty hefty challenge to say the least. Um, and that assumes that she comes through. Yeah, as you say. So I would so say that. Like... I mean, you know, Jabour's playing really well, but I, I still wouldn't be entering a Grand Slam tournament fearing Ons Jabour in many ways you know it's all about this kind of I think of you would thing. be and I think you I would should yeah be. I'd absolutely particularly at the minute <laughs> you know, I, I, I wonder if I was a bloody servant at the moment um, you know for someone like Raducanu who's a Grand Slam champion you know Jabour's going to ha- enter this tournament with a lot of kind of targets on her back which she won't really be used to kind of posting these two back to back big finals in Madrid and Rome so you know, I'm not. I'm not sitting here thinking Onzibor's nailed on for the French Open final. I think they're completely different kettle of fish. Uh, again, my 
weekly mention of the extra day break for the women at the French Open makes it so much harder. <laughs> um, yeah, she's also, uh, as we should point out, um, picked up or employed a full-time hitting partner, um, Raymond Sarmiento, uh, who is an American pro uh, with a career-high ranking of 287. Uh, he is 0-1 at ATP Tour level, but he is going to, it seems, be uh, her full-time hitting partner um, for the foreseeable future. How long that lasts, of course. Um, will depend on whether Ian likes him or not, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm wondering what aspect they're planning on sucking from him in the kind of <laughs> mad kind of coaching uh, Venn diagram. What, what's the aspect he's to bring? How yeah. not to win a match at tour level? They've got that. They've seemed to have that down at the minute. Anyway, that's what I was about. I mean, I, to be to be honest, it, I I think if he's a nice bloke, that I think that's massive. Uh, I was talking to <laughs> no, I ge- genuinely like. You know, obviously, there's a lot to be said for a good coach, Calvin. I promise. Um, but you're also going to spend a lot of time with this guy, and like, uh, realistically, tour life is hard, and getting on with someone is part of the challenge. And spending a lot of time. You know, I spoke to Daria Bramvitz this week, who is um, Iga Shontek's uh, performance psychologist, and she talked a lot about their methods. And and really, as much of it is, she's there all the time. They have sessions and they have structured sessions that they appointments they have to keep but she's also just there chatting all the time and that that's really important so uh yeah we'll we'll see what we'll see what becomes of that i'm i'm keen to move on because we're running out of time uh heather watson is in the main draw um she has got and this is one i'm definitely going to pronounce wrong uh it's elsa jacomo who is another french wildcard uh she's 19 she's ranked outside top 200 so You'd think Heather Watson come through that and potentially play Angelique Kerber in the second. And then uh, we've also got Harriet Dart, who has got Martina Trevisan, the Italian. Now, I think this is quite a bad draw uh, because Trevisan has been to the quarterfinals of the French Open. She's also picked up some pretty sizable results in the last couple of weeks. I think she beat Muguruza in Morocco. Um, So I'm not super comfortable with Harriet Dart winning in the first round. Has anyone got anything to suggest that she might? I mean, just going back to Jabor's draw, I mean, generally speaking, like Lynette and Trevisan are two slightly awkward first couple of round players. Trevisan is playing I, 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 as we speak as well. She's in the final in Morocco. So I, I'm I'm, a, I'm talking myself out of Jabor, even though I've uh, submitted <laughs> my picks already. I, I think she could be a shock early, uh, right. shock early exit. Mm. Well, I think we've... Um... Pulled that draw to pieces now. Um, there's a few bits of any other business that are worth mentioning. Um, Feliciano Lopez is not in the men's draw, which ends his uh, 79 slam streak um, of consecutive participations. Uh, it goes back to Roland Garros in 2002. I think I'm right in saying that the new sort of father of the house in terms of Grand Slams is Grigor Dimitrov in terms of consecutive uh, participations in Grand Slams, which it's weird to think of him being a sort of you know, elder statesman yeah. of the tour these days. So what number is that around the 50s, 40s? Uh, he's been played every slam since the 2011 Australian Open. Okay. So that would be that 45, high. I think it is. 45. Um, or 41. I can't do maths. Uh, which is impressive. Um, and weirdly, I sort of assumed that he'd had some sort of big injury in that time, but I guess not big enough to keep him out of the slam. Um, there's no chance Grigor Dimitrov wins this, is there? Good, yeah. Just thought, I'd, just thought, I'd check. Just thought, I'd check. He's, he's playing quite well, you know. To mark that first forty-four first consecutive slam, it's his first major title. 
maybe. Um, I think that is all we've got time for. Um, I'm going to be heading off in, well, about 12 hours um, to Paris, or 16 hours, I should say, uh, for the French Open. I hope to be doing something for you every day. Um, it might just be me. Sometimes it'll be me and George. Sometimes it'll be me, George, and Calvin, um, just depending on timings and arrangements, because obviously we've got 10 nights of late tennis in Paris this year, which I'm delighted about and definitely not gutted to be missing quite a lot of dinners. Um, but yeah, so we will, we will try and keep you right up to date. We'll do, a, we'll do I think, I'm right in saying, two full-length pods a week um, and then, yeah, as many podlets as we can possibly manage. Um, thank you very much for listening, as always. Please do leave us a rating and a review and follow us on Twitter and, of course, play Fantasy Tennis and really show George up for the few Podcast Network.